Hello, hello. There we go. We got sound. We're ready to go. Welcome. Greetings. Let's open in prayer and we'll we'll jump in. Father, we bless you. Uh, we lift this evening before you as we open up your word together. I pray that uh, that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you. Speak to us through your word by your spirit. Help us to hear what it is. Help me to share those things to speak to those things that you would uh, be on be on your heart that that we would we would receive those and may it not be about what we receive in here but what we carry with us father we bless you and thank you and we pray all these things in jesus name amen all right so i'm starting a new study tonight we've been talking about it a study called i dare you not to bore me with the bible and i'll give a good intro on it in just a minute um but one thing i did want to mention um, some may be aware of this. Miss um, Annie uh, passed away this week. Uh, the service, the funeral for her will be this Sunday. So we're not having connect groups so we can prepare the church for the funeral service. Um, and uh, so those that are able to hang out after church and help, that would be, be huge. Um, we're also going to be providing food for after the service. So um, if you can help with that, if you could shoot Melanie an email. Um, if you need her email, you can get with me afterwards. I'll look it up and find it. Is Sheila the one collecting the food? Okay, so send it to Sheila then. Um, Sheila's getting the food list as to who can bring what uh, for food to provide for the family. So, um, And by all means, if you're able to attend, the service is going to start at 3, I believe. So it'll be 2 o'clock for a family visitation. They're going to have an hour for visitation, so we'll... Have a chance to set the church up with the flowers up and everything in the funeral home here, and then have a visitation time for them and some quiet time for the family, and then we'll do the service at three. Um, and uh, if you're bringing food, if you could have it here by 4:30, if you're not um, going to be here, able to be here for the service. So really appreciate prayers for the family and and everyone's help. They've been been a part, long time part of the church family here. We were figuring it out the other night. It's been at least 18 years they've been part of the church family. So it's been a long time. Um, And uh, just amazing, amazing, incredible, godly family. Um, All right. That said, we are starting, like I said, a new um, study tonight. It's our first lesson. My source, main source, is the book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. And... um, I'm actually going to go through the forward in the intro to it before we get into the lesson. And if you get the book, I highly recommend getting the book. Um, and it, it'll it'll talk about the forward in the, in the intro, talk about how we're going to approach this. But I'm going to do the order a little bit different than what's in the book. So if you get it and you want to read along, instead of the way the book's set up is it goes through all Old Testament passages and then it goes through all New Testament passages. What I'm doing is I'm taking one passage from the Old Testament, one passage from the New Testament. And so I'll, I won't be going in the order. So if you want to read along and or study up a little more um, on uh, what we'll be looking at each week, uh, uh, that's that's how I'm going to be doing it. I'm going to be taking one and one. Hopefully, you know, when I can, I'll get through two two passages each time. All right, so what's this all about? In, in my sources, Michael Heiser's work, um, um, I've, I've gotten... Several of his books, highly recommend his work. He's a, 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 an amazing scholar, Bible scholar. All right, so the foreword was written by John Barry. He's the editor-in-chief for Bible Study Magazine. He also um, does a lot with uh, Lagos, 
uh, Bible software. And this is what he wrote. I'm going to quoting his forward to the book because I want us to get a flavor of what, what we're attempting to do here. Because this is what my, my, our goal is to be able to read the Bible in its context, understand the scriptures in its context. And so we're going to be looking at subjects that the Bible brings up that many of us may have never heard before because we don't have that background. We weren't from that time. We didn't have that understanding. And that's and so it, I, I believe it's been hugely helpful to me in getting more from the scriptures as I've done this. So now some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, if you've heard me teach at any point in time, you've heard me bring some of these things up. So, um, But let me just go ahead and read the forward in the, in the intro. Just to, We're all kind of on even ground as to what our goal is, is going through this. So the Bible is accessible to anyone. Anybody can read it. But how many know parts of it are perplexing? Anybody ever scratch their head and you read part of the Bible? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. We don't understand that part, so we're going to skip over that part. Yeah. So it's, it's the weird and supposedly boring parts of the Bible that Dr. Michael S. Heiser addresses in this volume. And, you know, if it's weird and, and it's boring, it's probably super important. There's probably a good reason for it. Uh, all in an effort to make the Bible come alive for you again. For many, Bible study means stilted religion or dull Sunday school classes. After reading this book, you won't be bored by Bible study. So it will explain Bible passages you've always, that have always confused you and show you that seemingly insignificant details can be actually critical, and you will never skip a Bible passage again. It's like, well, just, can we get past this part? Except, you know, maybe the genealogies. No, but even those are important. <clears throat> Dr. Heiser will connect you to the place and time in which the Bible writers lived and help you understand what these connections mean. I'm going to give you a maxim, just kind of a, a really good way of approaching Scripture and Bible interpretation. Here it is. Before we figure out what it means, figure out what it meant. Before we try to figure out what it means, figure out what it meant. So our first step, you know, most of the time, not 100%, but most of the time is going to be, what did it mean to them? Now, how does that apply to us? All right, so... Um, He will also help you develop your Bible study abilities. So part of this process is not just learning about these things, but to help us be able to study ourselves. So tried, tested, tried and tested. The essays in the the collection originally appeared in Bible study magazines. So this is actually uh, a book that's been put together from a bunch of articles from Bible study magazine called Weird But Important. I love that title. Um, and there was a section, I dare you not to bore me with the Bible and what they don't tell you in church. And so we're in church and you're going to hear it. Um, many of the essays included are interrelated and many offer succinct treatments of complex topics. So one of the things, um, and, and we'll, we'll try to make some of the connections as we go through this, because I'm going to do Old Testament, New Testament together, there's going to be some stuff we may not get some of the connections to, but we'll make them. I'll, I'll try to make them as best possible as we go through them. All right, so Dr. Heiser has published on most of the topics academically. And you can see some of his research at, well, I actually went there, michaelsheiser.com. I would go to, to, I didn't see that one come up. I think that's an old one. If you want to go to his, go to Naked Bible Podcast. Uh, um, or or um, DRMSH, I think is another one uh, for um, uh, a site of his. Enjoy traveling the ancient trails of the biblical world. May God bless you in your pursuit of him and the study of his word. So that's um, John Barry's kind of forward to tell us give us a little flavor now here's heiser's intro to the book and um 
and I, I'm going to only do the intro tonight. I'm not going to do it each week like I, you know, like I have in the past. This is just tonight, so y'all get it special. Um, and after this, we'll just each week just kind of jump into the topics we're going to look at for the week. So the Bible is a wonderful book. How many say amen to that? Uh, its pages reveal literally an epic story of, of how God is redeeming humanity. The long, bitter conflict against evil. Guys, one of the things we need to learn to do is to tell the story of the Bible. Stories move people. And why do you think so many people are moved by subjects in movies, TV, uh, advertising, um, uh, music? All of those things are telling stories, and they move people. Well, we happen to have a story that's true. Yet it's also a book that seems strange to us. Well, God's Word was written for us. Catch this. It wasn't written to us. It was written for us, not to us. It's been my experience as a Bible reader, seminarian, graduate student, even as a biblical studies professor, that most people don't know what to do with the odd, perplexing, and perhaps frightening passages in Scripture. Quite frankly, what also happens, I've seen a lot of skeptics pick up on some of these and use them as apologetic against um, a biblical worldview, against God, against Christianity, and because we don't know how to handle them, we don't know how to respond to them. So we tend to skip them. So it's easy, right? We just skip over them. Yet by doing so, we abandon our responsibility to grasp and teach the entirety of Scripture. Now this book, Scripture, we believe is the inspired Word of God. That means the weird and hard parts too. So there's a reason for them. As a consequence, believers are taught to learn only the basic truths taught in the Bible. And that is so true. Um, uh, there's something called, big fancy word, the per, I can, I'm see if I can say it, per, perspicuity of the scriptures. It means the clarity of the scriptures. Anybody can pick up the Gospels, read the Gospels, and understand salvation. You don't have to have a PhD. He didn't say, come unto me, uh, um, uh, be like a PhD in order to come to me. He said, be like a child, the faith of a child. Anybody can open up. But there's a lot in the text. It takes real learning, real study, real effort to learn. Um, and so we're, we're, uh, uh, we're walking that line to say, yes, these basic truths, we've known them and we understand them, but we don't want to get rid of the rest of it because we'll actually understand the basic truths even better when we can put them in the context in which they were given to us. Recent studies from the Barna Group demonstrate that a growing rate of biblical and theologically, a growing rate of biblically and theological illiteracy in the church at all ages, especially those under 40. 69%, you know, I'll tell you the, re, the, the source for this. You can go to 2122 American World War View Inventory. Um, it's put out by CRC, uh, the, the Christian Research Council, which is a um, research arm, a cultural research arm of Arizona Christian University. George Barna is a part of that group. And in that research, he, they point out they've done the hard numbers. This is the fact. This is where we are. 69% of Americans self-identify as Christians. Only 6% of Americans have an actual biblical worldview. Only 39% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. So this is dead on what he's saying right here. Biblical and theological illiter illiteracy contributes to, 
through less engagement with the Bible. When you don't know it, you don't engage it. Less of an appetite for its teachings. If you don't understand it, why are you hungry for it? And more confusion and skepticism. Like I said, I just heard the other day, two people debating and once again, I hear the skeptics, you know, come up with all these things. Well, the Bible teaches this, 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 and this, and this. How could we believe in it? And the person opposing, I'm like, you just let that lay out there. Ah, there's answers. Many Christians know the indispensable parts of the storyline of the Bible and the gospel message. Great, we need to. Yet they're lost when it comes to the remainder of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Which I actually don't even like the term Old Testament because there's nothing in the Bible that says other than what we've added to it that says this is Old Testament, this is New Testament. It just says it's the scriptures. It starts here and it goes here. That's all it says. When Paul is talking to Timothy and he writes in Timothy, I believe it's 2 Timothy 3.16, and he says all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for instruction, for equipping in righteousness. When he says all scripture, what's he talking about? The Old Testament, the New Testament was just coming into existence. They hadn't, you know, they were sharing the letters and learning from it. So, uh, anyway, this is my pet peeve I'm throwing in here. I don't like the term Old Testament because most of us here are old and don't think prior. Most of us here are old and think done away with, get rid of, don't need it anymore. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you don't, you do not understand the New Testament. Parts of it. Some believers try to mend this knowledge gap. They might read through all the notes in the study Bible or even use various tools. They may study Hebrew and Greek words. Yet those are the exceptions. Many people, after years of inaction, get bored with the Bible. I began my teaching career, this is Heiser talking, at a Bible college where I inherited the next generation of Christian young people. Now, this is an age group that is now the adult leadership in their churches. That's when he started doing this. Uh, he's with the Lord now, uh, passed away last, uh, last February from, from cancer. It's a long battle. Since these students had chosen to go to Bible college, I presume they were the most likely to be interested in the material. So he's coming in, he's like, ah, he's, he's, he loves the scriptures, he's ready to teach, I'm in a Bible school, they got to be loving it, they're ready to hear from it, right? I quickly discovered that wasn't the case. These students had grown up in the church, they'd heard the sermons, they attended Sunday school classes, they listened to countless messages at youth groups and camps. In their minds, they heard it all. And in one sense, they had. They had heard everything that they'd been told. They had heard all the items covered in Christianity 101, a hundred times. I distinctly remember looking out on a room full of faces that telegraphed one thought, I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. And I accepted the challenge. It, am I behind? Thank you. It was thrilling to show students that there is so much to discover and think about in Scripture. My students needed to understand that Bible reading is not Bible study. I'm going to say that again. Bible reading is not Bible study. You have to read it to study it, but simply reading it is not studying it. And that truly understanding much of the Bible requires seeing it in its original context. This is what I was talking about before. Know what it meant before you know what it means. Not filtering it through familiar tradition. And that's the next thing we do. We all have our doctrinal list. And we put the doctrinal glasses on and find our proof text to prove our doctrines. Rather than the other way around. 
I could only hope that after my tiny classroom of students left Bible college, they'd keep probing and discovering. Uh, this grew out uh, of the desire to make Bible Study Magazine a tool for stimulating the person in the pew to engage the most fascinating book in the world. I recall discussing the first issue years ago with the, our editor, John Barry. I related some of the episodes where I picked up the gauntlet, thrown down to my students not to bore them with the Bible. And we decided to name one of those features, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. So that's how we got the title for this book. And so out of those early conversations, some of the other titles we talked about, weird but important, what they don't tell you in church, some of these things. So um, this book is a compilation of all those things, all these contributions, all these features. So I am going to believe that once we get through this one, we won't be bored with our Bible. Are we all good with that? Who's ready to not be bored by their Bible? All right, so we're going to take, um, and again, get the book, you know, just listen it to, to uh, you know, I break down here is good and it's helpful, but I recommend getting the book. I got, you can get the audio book for people like to listen. There's an audio book version, um, and I have an electronic version. I actually got a, a copy in Lagos. All right, so part one, the Old Testament. First thing we're going to do is the ancient's guide to the galaxy. And what we're going to do is we're going to understand the world, the universe, the way they understood it, not how we understand it. When you understand how they understood it, then when you read the text, you'll see why they said certain things the way they said them. So God chose a specific time, place, and culture to inspire people to produce what we read in the Old Testament. The ancient Mediterranean and the ancient Near East of the second and first millennial B.C., I've heard Heiser say this before. He says, if you want to understand the Old Testament, you have to get an ancient Near Eastern Mediterranean Jew into your brain. If you can do that and you can think the way they thought, the way they looked at the world, the way they saw the world, then you read these writings and they make more sense to you. Um, So um, how many have ever been on a phone conversation and someone else walks into the room and they hear just what you say and completely don't understand at all what's going on, but think they do know what's going on because they hear your words. Okay, if you're married, that's probably happened to you. You know, yeah, and uh, so why did they misinterpret? Because they simply took your words in their context, not your words in the context of the conversation. Had they known the conversation, what they thought. Uh, would have been very different, and they would have had understanding. Let me give you an, an example. So, um, how many have ever heard the song Yankee Doodle Dandy? Anybody heard the song Yankee Doodle Dandy? Okay, so say, you know, say the words with me. Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat, and called it macaroni. Okay, now uh, some of you have heard me say this and know this, so don't give away the answer if you have. Um, um, why is he calling a feather macaroni? You know the answer? Yeah. Like a decoration? Okay. What? Uh, so macaroni. What's macaroni to us? Pasta, right? And so, I mean, things that we could come up with from our context, you know, they were so hungry they could eat their hats. Uh, you know, they could have some food they carry around with them. Um, you know, they just... It, it, it looked like a long string, stringy spaghetti. You know, we could come up all kinds of things that have come from our perspective. 
Now, it just so happens, for a very short period of time in the English language, during the Revolutionary War, the word macaroni had a very distinct special meaning that has nothing to do with food whatsoever. And so the, the, where the song comes from is that during the Revolutionary War, the, the, colony, the, the, the uh, um, soldiers from the colonies were opposed to the soldiers from Great Britain. The soldiers from the Great Britain were called the Redcoats. The Redcoats were known as some of the most best, well-dressed soldiers in all the world. And so they came over very well-dressed, ready for battle, and this was an important distinction in battle. And the, the, the colonist soldiers were a ragtag team. So here was someone giving them feathers, and they were putting them into their caps, making them look good. Macaroni meant to be well-dressed. They put a feather in their hat. Now they are macaroni. Now they look. Here's a, here's a word we use that somebody might get confused. They look sharp. Does that mean they look like a knife? No. They look, means they look macaroni. <laughs> means they look good. Now how important was it to know what that word meant then in order to understand that song? And yet we've been singing it forever. I'll give you one more. Let's suppose we had a very, very special time machine that could take us Far into the future. Let's say it could take us 2,000 years into the future. Okay? And, and so let's say we, we were 2,000 years into the future, and we came to Tell Houston. And we are archaeologists, anthropologists, and we're digging through Tell Houston. And we dug down, and we pull out this perfectly preserved jar. And, and, and we can read the writing. Now, this writing was, a, was, a, was, a, was an ancient language, and it wasn't... Uh, you know, the language that we speak 2,000 years in the future. But we know, we studied the ancient languages. So we know what these ancient languages say because we're experts in this. And it says pico de gallo on it. And we go, oh my goodness, 2,000 years ago they ate rooster beaks. And we would be dead wrong even though we know the language. Because we have to understood what it meant in its time. Now, that's what we're trying to do here. So I'm saying all this, having a little fun with it, because some of it's going to be mind-bending. Because we, we don't realize how much we bring our perspective to the Scriptures. And we want, to, we want to reverse that and say what was their perspective and bring that forward. All right, now, I'll just leave it at there. Um, Let's keep going. So understanding the worldview of this culture can lead to more faithful understandings of the scriptures on our part, especially when it comes to understanding how the Israelites viewed God and the universe. So the Old Testament had a very specific cosmology. How many know that the Old Testament written started, you know, the, Moses started writing these things down about uh, 3,500 years ago. How many know that that was a pre-scientific era of time? That was before modern science. You know, modern science, you know, we can, you know, we can kind of go on back to the, the, the Middle Ages and come forward and towards the Renaissance, you know, somewhere around Isaac Newton and then moving forward with modern science. Before that, they had a very different perspective. Now, here's what's important. It was pre-science. It was not pre-truth. This is what's important. And so we live in what kind of a society? We live in an enlightened, post-enlightenment society. So everything we look at, we bring a scientific mind to. 
And so we're asking questions they weren't asking. We're reading things they're not reading. We're thinking they're saying things, answering questions that they're not actually talking about. So what we have to do is say, what are they talking about? What are the questions they're answering? And then see if it has answers to the way we would bring it, come to it. All right? So Old Testament cosmology, what is that? What is cosmology? Cosmology refers to the way we understand the structure of the universe. That's what cosmology is. Bible writers had a very different conception of how God structured the heavens and the earth than we do. They, they see it very different. I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. The ancient Israelites, what the ancient Israelites believed about the structure of the universe was common with ancient civilizations. Now, everything I'm going to show you here is well known in biblical scholarship. I'm not showing you anything fancy or anything new. This is all well documented. So the way the ancient Israelites understood cosmology is that, that, that the universe was made up of three parts. You had the heavenly realm. You had an earthly realm. For this is where humans lived. And then you had under the earth, and that was for the dead, the underworld. So we're going to break that down, and we're actually going to see it in the Scriptures. When you know it, and then you start reading the Scriptures, all of a sudden you start seeing it everywhere. And, ah, yeah, there's that perspective, there's that perspective, there's that perspective. Um, It's reflected directly in the Ten Commandments. Here it is. So here's an Exodus. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of uh, or any likeness of anything that is where? In heaven above, on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. The water under the earth. Yeah. See, now that you know it, how many times have we actually stopped and read the actual words, but now you know the perspective and you look at the words and go, there it is. Plain as day. Right on the text. There's a lot more. We're not done. So here's a picture of it. Um, See if I can... You all see that? All right. So what the understanding is, and we're going to look at all the scriptures. And, and when, you, when you go through the creation week, it, it actually breaks down how uh, the, the understanding of this. So you have the heavens up here. This is the heavens. They believe there's this hard firmament right here, this hard firmament um, that, that, that separated the expanse of the sky from the heavens. And then the earth came up out of the water, land came up out of the water, and you had land, and the highest mountains were like uh, were um, uh, pillars or foundations that held up the firmament. And then there were these mountains that went way down under that held the land up, and under here is the abyss and the underworld. And there's a couple of different um, understandings of the underworld. And that is the way the ancients understand the, the, the cosmology, the, the construct of the universe. That's how they understood it. Now, were they right? No, they weren't right. Um, but the, is God able to use how they understood it to bring truth to us? Yes, he is and does and does amazingly. And there's a lot of truth that comes out of it. It doesn't have, uh, um, remember, it may be pre-science, it's not pre-truth. And that's important. So, the heavens. What was the Israelite understanding of the heavens? What was their ancient, the ancient way of seeing it? This is Genesis 1, 6 through 8. Well, it describes, and I, I went through the picture, now we're going to see it in the text. I showed you the picture first, now we're going to go back to the text. And what does it describe? It describes this expanse, and there's water above the expanse, and there's water below the expanse. And that expanse over top, they believed there were windows and doors in that, that water could come through. It's where you get rain and, and floods would, and those types of things. And God said, let there be an expanse, a rakia, in the midst of the waters. 
and, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And so it was, and God called the expanse heaven. So he separated. Heaven is, the, the, what's, what's fascinating here is the word for heaven, um, or heavens, shamaim, um, is the same word for sky as well as heavens the way we would think of when you think of going to heaven. It's the exact same Hebrew word. Why? Because it was constructed in their mind is connected. That's how they constructed it in their mind. All right, sky. It was thought to be, the sky itself thought to have a solid firmament and it separated the waters above from the waters below. What God, you know, when you, when you look at, um, when you look at the very first verse of, of scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the, her, and the earth was without form or void, um, and darkness was over the face of the earth and the spirit of, uh, uh, of God hovered over the deep or the abyss. Um, what that, Verse, what those sentences actually saying is, when God first created, there was this chaotic, nothing, no form, deep, watery abyss. And then he began to speak. And when he began to speak, he began creating. The first thing he created was light. The next thing he created was this expanse that separated the heavens. And, um, uh, and there's a reason for all of it. Um, the reason for all of it is, and this is beyond the scope of tonight, but I'll just throw this out there for study for another time, is when Moses, and I believe it was Moses that actually wrote uh, that this first account of creation, you can look at the, the biblical account of creation, and then you can go look at the Egyptian account of creation. You can look at the Mesopotamian account of creation. You can look at uh, multiple ancient accounts of creation, and you can see what Moses is doing is point for point, giving a polemic to say, no, it wasn't your gods. No, it wasn't this God that did this. No, it wasn't that God that did this. It was the God of heaven and earth who created all this. And what he's, the question he is answering, because the question is his time, is who is the true God of heaven and earth? Who is the true God that created all this? That's the question he's answering. And this, all this that we see didn't come from the battle of gods battling it out. It didn't come from... From uh, El conquering Tiamat and out of Tiamat this coming to us. In fact, those, those great sea creatures that you call great sea creatures are actually in the Hebrew shown as creations of God that he controls. And so he is responding to all of the, the, the theological, cosmological questions of his day. And one for one, ticking them off, telling them why they're wrong. Not the questions of our day. Now, does it respond to the questions of our day? I think it does. But I think it does in a very different way most people do. But, again, that's beyond. You could talk about that later. What I'm wanting to see is just we're taking one small part of this, and let's see this in the Scripture. All right. So here it is in Proverbs 8:27. When he, the Lord, established the heavens, Shamaim, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. So once again, we're getting these concepts mixed. You know, the, 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 the Spirit of God was hovering over the abyss, the deep. This watery, chaotic, formless void. What did God do? He established the heavens. He took them and opened them up. Here's Proverbs speaking to this same thing. When he made the firm skies above, and when he established the fountains of the deep, this watery uh, uh, um, uh, uh, underworld abyss. Proverbs eight twenty eight. 
So this firmament dome surrounded the earth. The edge of it met the horizon and the, the boundary between light and darkness. If you, if you, if you quote unquote traveled to the edge, you were at the boundary of light and darkness. Well, that's fascinating to me because the boundary between, uh, light and darkness is the boundary between uh, God's created order and the chaos that, that attacks it. The darkness. So it very, very much symbolically reflects the truth of the spiritual world and the truth of God's creation. Uh, Here it is in Proverbs 26. He inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. Isn't that fascinating? They looked, that's how they saw it. Now, why is that important? Because when you're reading the scripture and you're trying to figure out what that verse means, if you knew how they understood it, you can look at it and go, well, I know what they mean by it. Does that mean we have to accept that as science? No. But I at least understand what the author is trying to tell me there. What he's trying to tell me is that um, it, it, it's, it's very akin to what, uh, uh, what God spoke to Job starting in chapter 38. Where were you, Job, when I did all this? Can you explain how all this done? Can you tell me how these things happened? Firmament. Uh, they believed it was supported by pillars or foundations, as I said earlier. The tops of the mountains, the highest mountain peaks would be that seemed to touch the sky. They believed that's what held up the, found, the, the foundation. There were doors and windows in heaven so rain and water could come through and could flow to the earth from their storehouses. There would be storehouses. I think it's a really fascinating way to describe the water cycle, actually. To me, it's a go. So let me give you another way of thinking about this. Because we do the same thing that Scripture's doing here all the time. We speak in similar language, even though we're not scientifically correct, and none of us has a problem with it. Not a one of us. Let me give you an example. Hey, anybody see the sunrise this morning? Anybody see it? How about the sunset? Anybody see the sunset today? It's beautiful. Aren't sunrises and sunsets beautiful? How many love to see sunrises and sunsets? I mean, are they not breathtaking? Well, I mean, you know, how in the world can you call it a sunrise and sunset? This is not the sense of the earth. How many, how many of us would go out? Did anybody see the, the point this morning when the earth rotated so that we could p- to get an appearance of the sun over the horizon? Anybody see that? And did you see, were you there at the very moment in time when we could get the refraction of the, of the light from the sun coming through the atmosphere? And, uh, did we talk that way? We don't talk that way. Yet we don't have a problem with understanding, calling it a, a sunrise and sunset. There's nothing wrong with that. That's very descriptive, isn't it? And for a long time, that's what people believed. We call it that. That's what we thought. You know, I'm standing here. We, from our perspective, from our perspective, it's what it looks like. And that's the description we're getting here. They didn't have the means to see the things that we have to see. So they're writing from the means from which they see it. So this is what it looks like. Now when we read the scriptures, we can understand. And these things actually cross over from physical descriptions into spiritual descriptions in multiple places. But you need to understand what's being said in order to get the, catch the crossovers. All right. So here it is in Genesis 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. 
I mean, there it is. This is a description of how they understood the cosmology. The water's coming up from below, and the water's coming down from above. Now, in fact, scientifically, are there waters coming underneath? Yeah, there are great reservoirs underneath. Scientifically, are there waters up above? Yes. They didn't understand how they were there or why they were there. They got it wrong. But from their description, they had a way of describing it. All right, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained. This is Genesis 8, 2 at the end of the flood. Psalm 78, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He's, he's, he's using poetic language here, but he's using poetic language from what they understood. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and he puts the deeps in the storehouses. Psalm 33, so... Where did God dwell? God dwelled above the firmament. He dwelled above that spot because that's the heavens. Remember, there's only one Hebrew word for heavens, Shamayim. They actually saw and understood the stars as spiritual beings. This was an ancient way of understanding the stars. It's right in the book of Revelation. When you open up the beginning of the book of Revelation, it's like right in your face when you know it, when you see it. It's amazing. Anyway, that's not in my notes. You can just write that's extra. Uh, verse Job 22, thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Thick clouds veil him. Where do you see clouds? In the heavens. So the earth, what was the Israelite understanding of the earth? Uh, when I say Israelite, I'm not talking obviously about modern, I'm talking about the ancient Hebrew understanding we're talking about. Um, I'm going to make that clarification. So the earth sat upon a watery deep. And that watery deep um, had contained two things, both waters that people would use. And you have wells, and you drop well water down, and you get water. But also the abyss. And the abyss loomed large in the ancient world. There is a lot of spiritual symbolism in the abyss. You know, everything was created out of the abyss in the ancient world. Um, uh, so the earth was surrounded by the seas. And, and, and actually had arisen out of the waters, and it was held fast by pillars that were like sunken foundations. Here's Genesis 1-9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And so it was. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. Second Peter. Peter writes very similarly. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through, wa- and through water by the word of God. Anybody catch that before? Not only out of the water, but through water. It came up through the water. He raises up, this is First Samuel, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princesses, inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He's using, the, 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 the author of Samuel is using the pillars of the earth as a metaphor, um, but, they, but the metaphor only works if you have the image. He's using it as a metaphor for what, how God raises people up, but if you don't have the image of what those pillars are doing, you don't understand how God is raising people up. Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? This is God talking to Job. On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? He set the earth on its foundations. 
so that it should never be moved. So the earth was set on foundations in this ancient picture. So the underworld. What was the ancient Hebrew understanding of the underworld? All right, so this was the realm of the dead. It was located under the earth. Look, we still use that same symbolism today. We go, you know, you're going to go down to the bad place. We still use the same symbolism. Where did it come from? This comes from this ancient understanding. The the most frequent term for um, the place of the dead, the realm of the dead in Hebrew, is the word sheol. Now, sheol carries with it three meanings. Uh, When you're studying the text, if you see the word sheol, um, you have to look at the context to understand what it means. One meaning just means somebody died. They just, they're just, they're no longer alive on earth. They're, they're dead. So that's one meaning. A second meaning means they're in the realm of the dead. And that's what we see right here. They're in the place of the dead. And it is the place where everyone goes, righteous and unrighteous. Everyone who died went to the realm of the dead, went to Sheol. Okay? Then there is a third meaning that you will see sometimes that is tied to like Gehenna, which would be our modern conception of hell. Uh, a bad place, a dark, uh, uh, a dark place or a burning place. Um, but most of the time, it just means the place of the dead. Overwhelmingly, it means just the place of the dead. Um, well, we're going to see. Great question. We're going to see. So here's, let's look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures say. Here's Psalm 9, um, Proverbs 9, verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The depths of Sheol, the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. Turn, O Lord, Psalm 6. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give praise to you? When someone goes to the place of the dead, they're no longer on earth. They're not here giving praise to you. Psalm 18. The cords of death encompassed me. Torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, catch that. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to get to it later. I'll, I'll save it for later. So, so we have this word Sheol. That's a, a, it's a, it's a, uh, a, a word for the realm of the dead, the place of the dead. Earth itself is also used as, as for the realm of the dead. Under the earth. The, it's the, the Hebrew word is Eretz. Sheol is a Hebrew word. So um, this is why, you know, when we talk about going down, when, well, in the ancient times, when they dug a grave and they put a human underground, they were like, that's the gateway to go where Sheol is. They're going through the gateway. Um, uh, in, in Job, this answer your question directly, the realm of the dead was described in watery terms. Why? Because it was over this great abyss that was underneath. Here it is in Job. The dead tremble under the waters and their inheritance. Well, now that you know how they saw the world, that verse makes sense. Otherwise, you're saying, if you didn't know that, if you didn't know this construct of how they looked at the world, and you're reading that, the dead tremble under the waters and their own. Why would dead be underwater? I'm not getting, is that like people who died out at sea? Is that what that means? No. He's just referring to the place of the dead, the, un, the, the world, the, the realm under. And what is it? He's saying they tremble and their inhabitants tremble in that place. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. They're trembling because they have been, because you stand completely exposed before God in that place. 
How many know the truth? That's true. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there is not one thing in our life that he is, we are not going to be, uh, um, uh, that will be able to be hidden. Not one thing. Not even a wrong motive that will be able to be hidden. So a better, this gives us a much better understanding. Now we're going to look at Jonah. And he's talking about himself in the belly of the fish. He's literally describing himself in the underworld. Because now that we know this, let's read this passage and let's take a look at it. The waters closed in over me to take my life. I mean, it's right there. They're coming over. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. The pillars that were holding things up. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my life from the pit. He literally says, I went to the place, to the realm of the dead. There's no chance. I was barred in. I was held in. I'm not coming back. But you, Lord. So the watery deep was where? At the roots of the mountains. It was a pit that had bars that were closed forever. This was what I was tying to the, one of the other ones that we looked at a minute ago. Cords that bound you. This was a place that, um, that you could not come out of. It's impossible. Jesus talks about this in Luke. You know, uh, there's great chasm that's fixed. Once you're there, there's no, there's no crossing it. Becoming familiar with the ancient Near Eastern worldview can help us inter- interpret the Old Testament. By understanding the Israelites' concept of cosmology, we have a better idea of their perceptions of God. And that's what we're trying to get here. Once again, just because it's pre-science doesn't mean it's pre-truth. It's very much filled with truth. They very much understood who God was and and the revelation God had given them. But God gives them the revelation based on their understanding. And they they use the things they understood to describe language this is what we see we see this in in multiple places when when i'll give you another example um when isaiah is has the experience where he is taken up in isaiah 6 and he has a heavenly experience he's 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 translated somehow into the heavenly places and he sees the lord uh, uh seated on the on the throne and he sees these throne guardians, these fierce throne guardians, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, right? And they've got six wings, and he's describing them. What's fascinating is the description that Isaiah gives. He calls them, does anybody know what he calls them there? 25 points if you get it. Seraphim. Anybody heard seraphim before? The term seraphim? He calls them seraphim, seraphs in English. Seraphim, plural uh, in, in Hebrew. Um, so... He describes them. The description he gives them is very Egyptian. If you were to look at Egyptian throne guardians, they look very similar to what Isaiah sees. Now, we fast forward over to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel has a vision of the heavenlies, and he sees throne guardians. And when he sees throne guardians, he gives, they're doing the same thing, but he describes them differently. How does he describe them? They look very much like Babylonian throne guardians. The language he uses He borrows, because it's the only language he has. It's the only way. When you're trying to explain things you've never seen before, and that you're trying to to give an understanding of, what language are you going to use? What you understand. 
And so he gives a very, he gives a very Babylonian description. They look very much like Babylonian throw guardians. And John borrows from that description when he describes them. But what are they? They're, they're, and they're, in, in that, in what John calls them is, uh, anybody know what John calls them? 25 points. Cherub, um, John or, um, I'm sorry, I'm in Ezekiel. Cherubim. Anybody heard of a cherub? A cherub is not, you know, a fat little angel with a bow and arrow. That's not a cherub. They are fierce, you know, that you see only on Valentine's Day. That is not a cherub. No, they are fierce throne guardians. They are fierce throne guardians, these spirit beings. All right. Guarding the, the, the holiness and glory of God. All right. So let's ready. You ready to turn over and look at something in the New Testament? I mean, ready to go to the New Testament. Anybody? Joe. All right. So we'll go. You and me. Um, just for my information's sake, uh, was anybody here familiar with the ancient um, cosmology of the Old Testament? Anybody here familiar with it? I know Marco was. You were? Anybody else familiar with it? Joe was? You had heard of it before? Okay. So a few people are familiar with it. All right. Let's, we're going to go to the New Testament. And I know some people would be familiar with some of what we're going to be talking about here because I've touched on it. But I'm going to bring up some other things that I have not touched on on this. So um, we're going to look at uh, new aspects, some new aspects in this. Um, this is uh, this section is called Burying Hell, Burying Hell. So it's kind of related to the Old Testament section in, uh, a bit. Um, so we're going to refer to this this scene that happens in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter chapter 16. And so uh, it starts off with Jesus saying to the disciples, uh, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say to him, well, you know, they say you're Elijah, come back. Uh, um, they, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some people say you're the prophet, you know, from Deuteronomy uh, 18. And he's like, okay, yeah, fine. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And they said, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter says this. And uh, so that was in verse 15. And Simon Peter replies, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I know many of you heard me break this down before, but like I said, we're going to look at some new things in here. For those of you who have not heard that, what I will tell you up front is we've had for centuries a debate over Peter is um, Peter's the English version of the um, uh, of the Greek Petrus for rock um, for the Aramaic uh, uh, Kepha, uh, which was Cephas. Um, so and then we get this other word for rock over here. And so it's like little rock and big rock. Is he talking about Peter? Is he talking about Jesus? Because he's the rock. And we get this big old debate. And I'm going to tell you it's neither. Okay, and that, that actually there is there's more going on. Let me put it this way. There's more going on than Peter and Jesus being rocks. Let me put it that way. Um, so the gates of hell. So why did Jesus respond to Peter's confession? Peter confesses. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. That's what Christ means. Christ means Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. That's what Peter says. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And interestingly, Jesus responds with something about gates of hell. Why is he bringing up gates of hell and talking to, to Peter when Peter brings up him being the Messiah? What connection 
the gates of hell and Messiah make to one another. So what we're going to look at is gates of hell in cosmic geography. Um, and once again, there's going to be a couple of new things in here for, for, um, for those of us we've studied some of this before. So when we read the word hell, we naturally think of the realm of the unbelieving dead, right? How many think, you know, that's where unbelievers go? We hear hell, we go, unbelievers, hell, unbelievers, that's where they go. Okay, that is, that, um, that's not what's going on here. The word for hell here is the Greek word Hades. And it's also a name for the underworld. Hades, so remember I told, what was the Hebrew word for 10 points? What was the Hebrew word for underworld? Sheol, that's right. Sheol was the Hebrew word. When they translated the, the, the Hebrew into Greek, we call that the Septuagint, guess what word they used for Sheol? Hades. So when we're reading the New Testament and we see the word hell, we need to know if that word Hades is behind it. Because the word Hades can mean, you know, what we think is the place for unbelievers, but it can also just mean the realm of the dead. Because it's translating the thought of Sheol. Okay? All right. So, Hades is the realm of all the dead, not just unbelievers. It's just the place of the dead. It's where the dead go. The Hebrew equivalent to Hades is Sheol, just like I said. It's the place under the earth. We even say that today. You know, they went down to the bad place. And we say we use the same language um, where all went after this life ended. All right, so Jesus' reference to the gates of Sheol would have been extremely jolting to them bringing up this conversation about him being Messiah. Why are you talking about gates of Sheol? Why are you talking about the realm of the dead? We're looking for the Messiah who's going to lead us into victory here on earth, and all of a sudden you're talking about the realm of the underworld? Jesus, you're weird. This is what they're hearing. Jesus, you're strange. Why are you bringing up the underworld? So, remember... Bars and cords tie down the inhabitants of the Sheol. We read it twice. The, the bars of the deep Jonah. We read it in, uh, I forget, uh, what's the other, I think it was Psalms, the other passage. Will it go down, here it is in Job. Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together in the dust? Uh, Samuel, for the waves of death encompass me. So that's where we read it. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of, of, of death confronted me. So Sheol can't be escaped. There's bars. You're, you're tied up. There's bars down there. In other words, the point being is you can't get out. Why in the world would he be tying the realm of the dead to the Messiah? As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. You can't get out. So the hope for the righteous believer. What's the hope for the righteous believer? That one day God will provide deliverance into His eternal presence. See, from the we all think now immediately when we think, you know, if a believer dies, they're right in God's presence. That's not how they thought. They thought one day God will provide deliverance from that place. I'll give you a New Testament example if you all want this. Here you go. How many remember when Lazarus died and... Jesus is getting ready, uh, and he's having the conversation with Martha, and he says to Martha, hey, don't you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And she says, yeah, Lord, at the end of time, there'll be the resurrection of the dead. That's when God will deliver everyone from the underworld. That's her understanding. And he says, no, I'm the resurrection. He's trying to communicate the same thing he's trying to tell the disciples right here. I'm the resurrection. All right. 
Verse 49. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. See, this is their hope. It's in the Psalms. They're singing about it. It's like we sing about the hope of resurrection. They're singing about being ransomed by God out of Sheol, out of the place of the dead. For he will receive me. Yet, it gets even more jolting for them. Why are you talking about this, this place of the underworld nobody can escape from? And how does it have to do with you being a Messiah? It gets even more. Why? Because if you knew your Old Testament and you knew where they were, you would realize that they're actually standing at the gates of Sheol, at the gates of Hades. So what is the gates of Hades in terrestrial geography, in earthly geography? Where is that? Is there a place? Yes, there is. In the mind of the Israelites, there was a place that was actually the gate. Now, this is, um, I, I quoted this to you earlier, so, but I'm going to read this part of it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of where? Caesarea Philippi. So this is where they are. They're in the, they're in the district of Caesarea Philippi. And that's when he begins to ask them, who do people say that I am, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the key is understanding this region. Right there, as they're in this city, right, that is the foothills to a high mountain. There's a mountain, there's a whole mountainous region there. And the, at the, the mountain they're in front of is the mountain called Mount Hermon. Now, in the Old Testament, this region was called Bashan. And it had a completely sinister reputation. There's, there's some language interpretation that Bashan actually means the, 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 the place of the serpent. The region of the serpent. And so that's where this mountain is. And if you look at certain psalms, it, it jumps out at you, um, this um, Mount Hermon language. All right. So here they are in Bashan. Now, this region in Bashan was controlled by two kings in the Old Testament. There were two kings. One's name was Sion. The other was Og. They were Amorite kings. They had, and the, both of these kings were associated with ancient giant clans, the Rephaim and the Anakim. And it's in the text. We're going to look at it. But they were both associated with the ancient giants. Here it is in Deuteronomy chapter 2. The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many, as, and tall as the Anakim. The Anakim are, remember in Genesis 6 when you had the giants who were, who were fathered by the sons of God leaving their place? The Nephilim, the Anakim, the Rephaim are all descendants of these giants, these um, hybrid uh, humans, humanoid beings um like the anakim they were also counted as rephaim but the moabites called them emim the the horites also lived in seir formerly but the people of esau disposed them and destroyed uh destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as israel did to the land of their possession which the lord gave to them now uh, this is joshua verse 12 now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of Arnon to Mount what? Hermon, that's right. All with uh, Arabah eastward. Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived there at Heshbon, ruled over Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon. And from the middle of the valley, as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that's the half, is, that is half of Gilead. And from the Arabah to the Sea of Chinaroth, eastward and in the direction of Beth Jeshemot to the Sea of the Arabah and the Salt Sea, south to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. So it's given the boundary lines of this region in this area. Now this is what I want to get to right here. And Og 
king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtarot and at Edrei. Keep in mind those two cities, Ashtarot and Edrei. And he, so Og was a descendant of who? The, the giants, the Rephaim. Did y'all catch that? And ruled over Mount Hermon and Seleka and all Bashan to the boundary of the Gershites. And, and it goes over the boundaries again, all the way down to where Sion was. So we get these two cities, Ashtarot and Edrei, which is the home of the Rephaim. Now, in Deuteronomy, it describes this Og, describes what he looked like. And we turned and went to the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, and he and his people to battle at Edrei, and all the cities of the tableland, so they all gathered together um, to, to battle against him. Um, and it says, For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. And Agabashan, one of the remnant of Rephaim, who lived at Esherot in Adrai. I'll keep going there. So, go ahead. Yeah, 18 inches, approximately. So nine cubits um, would be nine, 13 and a half feet. A bed 13 and a half feet long. And we think somebody's tall if they're seven foot. This is almost twice as tall as somebody we think is tall. Like super tall. Exactly. Yeah, made of iron so that he could support his body. Okay? I mean, this is the size, this is the kind of size we're talking about when you go look at Goliath and his his five brothers. These are... Um, remnants coming out of this. Now we're going to get to understanding how all this ties to gates of hell. So these cities are mentioned. The Rephaim are there. Um, now it's fascinating in, in the Canaanite Ugarit, the cuneiforms, they say the same thing. They're, they're, they're referencing the same thing. We've got, we've got extra biblical documentation of the, of the same thing here. Um, the people of the Ugarit believed that the Rephaim were actually spirits of dead warrior kings. That was their understanding of it. They were spirits of dead warrior kings. They also believed that the cities of Ashtarot and Adrai were the entryway, the gates to the underworld, the gates of hell. Um, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And so, during when when Israel's kingdom was divided, um, uh, and how many know that Israel was divided into two? I want to make sure everybody understands the history. So Israel was Israel was all all together uh, through King Saul, through King David, through King Solomon. After Solomon, it split in half, and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. When that after that happened, the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the first king, went up to the region of Dan which is right there south of Mount Hermon, and he established the worship of Baal. Once again, in the region referred to as the gates of hell, the region of the serpent. So here you have these Jewish disciples of Jesus, and he just, 
Who do you say that I am? Oh, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one we were looking for. You're the one going to set us free. You're the one going to conquer Rome. Yeah, we believe that. And all of a sudden, Jesus is talking about the region of the serpent and evil and otherworldly domain. He's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Why are you talking about all this? But that's not all. (laughs) But wait, there's more. It's like a late night commercial. (laughs) So according to Jewish tradition, Mount Hermon was the actual location, and this ties to your question, where the sons of God in Genesis 6 actually came down. That was the portal. They came down on top of Mount Hermon in order to corrupt earth by creating the race of the Nephilim. That was their understanding of it. That's what they're thinking. So when Jesus is saying the gates of hell shall not prevail, he's actually talking about the second uh, rebellion of humanity, which was led by the spiritual evil that totally corrupts humanity, completely corrupts humanity, and, and, and creates uh, these giants who are the enemies of God, ultimately corrupting mankind via their offspring with human women. Here it is in Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Sons of God, when you read Sons of God in the Old Testament, um, it's a reference to the divine council, uh, uh, the reference to spirit beings who were reigning with God in the heavens just like we're, we were to reign with God on earth. And God gave dominion to us on earth to reign over the earth. He gave dominion in the heavens to them to reign in the heavens. Psalm, um, Psalm 82 talks about them supposedly reigning on earth to lead humanity back to him, and they rebelled, and God's going to judge them. That's what Psalm 82 talks about. Um, then the Lord said, uh, I won't go into all this. But here's verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, if you were with us when we studied um, Daniel, the Babylonians thought these were the good guys. The Babylonians literally said all the knowledge we have, all our greatness came from these guys. These guys were so great. They're they're who made us great. And then you remember when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and, and one of these sons of God appears to him in a dream, the watcher. And all of a sudden, the guys he thought were his heroes or they were pronouncing judgment over him. Yeah, I may remember that dream in Daniel chapter 5 when this happens. All right. So why I'm bringing this up, yes. Bingo. Ooh, very good. You're actually reading your Bible. Very good. You picked up on that. Yes. So the question becomes, how were they there afterwards? This is the question everybody wants to know. So there's two possibilities. Scripture doesn't tell us. Either some survived the flood um, and some believe that and they believe because they believe there was a regional flood maybe not worldwide and so some people did survive and perhaps some of them were those who survived i personally don't think that's how it happened i personally think it says what it says um uh the um these the nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards how when the sons of god came into the daughters of men and they bore to them i think it just happened twice yeah and, and which is why, now, some people say, well, how could we know that really actually happened? Well, Peter and Jude talk about it. It's in their letters. They talk about the sons of God who, who left their place and are locked up in Tartarus as a result. They literally are quoting 
or, or borrowing from the story of the book of Enoch in, in, in Second Temple Judaism. And, and um, it's a different story. We'll actually get to that story eventually. So, but we need to know this to go there. All right. So these offspring were known as Nephilim. These are the ancestors of the Anakim and the Rephaim. So these Nephilim, the, the Anakim, the Rephaim, you know, uh, uh, Goliath, Og, you want to put real names to them? These guys descended from these guys, these guys back here. Um, these were evil. They were inherently evil. Um, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy the land. How many remember this? Numbers? You know, they're, they're, they just got out of the Exodus. They just came out. And, and, and God's about to take them into the promised land. And he sends, he sends spies into the land to check it out, to, to see what it is they're about to inherit. And they go and they look and they go, oh my goodness, this land's amazing. We've never seen fruit so big. We've never seen so much plenty. And they come back. And, and Caleb and Joshua are like, guys, it's amazing. God's given us the most amazing place. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Right? This is, this is, he's on the sidelines, right? This is, then the men who had gone up with him said, we can't go in there. Did you see who was there? We're going to go up with people who are way stronger than us. Why are they way stronger? So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we had uh, uh, gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw are of a great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. We seem to them, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So, see, now that you know all this background, I want you to think, I want you to put yourselves in their shoes for a minute. Because these weren't just big people. They understood their origin. Their origin was spiritual evil. Well, yeah, God could beat the entire army of Egypt. But how is he going to beat these guys? We know where they came from. You see the, the mindset going on. What would lead them to rebel? After just seeing all the deliverance, what would lead them to rebel now? They just Food is falling from the sky every day. I mean, God is doing miracle after miracle. What is going to cause them? They understood not only the human side of what they were looking at, but the spiritual side of what they were looking at. Caleb understood the spiritual side of who God was. Now, that's going to be key for us. Because Peter says, I mean, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Hmm. All right. Uh, where am I? Ooh, good, I'm winding down here. So in Jewish theology, these spirits, um, the, the, the spirits of these giants are actually where demons come from. So and I need to explain this because I know some people are going, what in the world are you talking about? And if you're not saying that, I will guarantee you that was the beginning of what I was saying when I first heard that. So <laughs> I'm like, what? All right. So. In the spirit world, we talked about this last week, um, uh, the, most of the spirits, uh, unclean spirits, um, are, higher, are of a higher level order. Powers. Paul calls them what? Powers. Principalities. Rulers. Uh, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Thrones. Elemental spirits. This is the language. He's got, and there's, there's, there's 
a few more terms he uses for them as well. Uh, and and their their main goal is deceiving humanity because God loves humanity in order to do as much destruction against God as he possibly can. And if someone becomes a believer, he wants to deceive the believer and entrap and ensnare the believer. Um, these these spiritual evil, but there are also um, uh, lower order beings in the spirit realm. There's different orders of beings, or lower r- r- order beings. Um, and the the uh, second temple understanding, the understanding that the that the disciples would have had of who these demons were, is when one of these giants dies. Well, they have a spirit. Their spirit goes to the underworld. Their spirit's disembodied. And that, spirit, that disembodied spirit wants what? It wants to come back and live on earth. How does it want to do it? It wants to find a human that, that it can operate on earth through. Well, we call it possession or we call it demonization. And this, this is their understanding of where these spirits would have come from. And so we see, interestingly, one of the first things we see Jesus doing when he goes into a synagogue and all of a sudden, a spirit manifests, and he casts that unclean spirit out. Right away, everyone is connecting. How does he have this power, this power of these unclean spirits who come from these beings who've corrupted the earth? Where does he get this? Now we can begin to understand why he's connecting gates of hell with being the Messiah. We can begin to see it. We can begin to understand this. Um, even worse... Caesarea Philippi had been built right there, Caesarea Philippi, that city, was built dedicated to Zeus. Um, this was pagan god was worshipped at a religious center built a short distance um, from, more than, um, uh, from, more, from the more ancient one of Dan, right there at the foot of Mount Hermon. So we get all of this symbolism, I mean, and all of this meaning in this one verse when Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail. All of this meaning is coming out. We're coming all the way back to this, re- we're in the region of the serpent. we got the rebellion of the sons of God. We've got the, the, the leading of the northern kingdom in, uh, to, to complete separation from God in the, in the worship of Baal. we got modern day worship of Zeus. We've got, I mean, uh, uh, we got... Um, Demonic possession. We have all this going on. Why is Jesus talking about all that in this spot? Aside from the brief interlude during the time of Joshua through Solomon, the gates of hell were continually open for business. This place had been continual, open from, from, from the original rebellion, except for this period of time when Joshua goes in until Solomon, um, till, uh, uh, after Solomon's reign. This, this place had been dark. And um, what is Jesus doing? Oops. Sally, I need some help here. This thing, I think my battery died in this. Next one. So what is Jesus doing? Next one. There we go. It's, I think it's working now. All right. Jesus declares war. And so this is where we wrap it up. You see, this rock which Jesus referred to, he was not talking about Peter, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about this rock right here, the foot of Mount Hermon. It's, just, it's, it's, it's symbolic in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's symbolic and in the Greek world for demonic headquarters. It's 
Zeus, the king of the pagan gods, right there. Baal, the king of the, the, the king god of the region. All the way back to the sons of God. This region right there where they're standing is symbolic for demonic headquarters. And what does Jesus say? He's literally declaring war. We often presume that that phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, describes a church taking on the onslaught of evil. And this is where we get the interpretation wrong. Most of the time we see, and, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. We, we think of it like the, the, that I'm going to be the Messiah, and I'm going to give you power and strength, so when hell comes against you, you'll be able to stand. That's how this passage is so often interpreted and understood, that it's all about the church resisting evil coming on it. Problem is, is it means just the opposite. That word against is actually not present in the Greek. That's not the word that's there in the Greek. Translating the phrase without it gives the complete different connotation. The gates of hell will not withstand it, is what the Greek actually says. The gates of hell will not withstand it. It's the church that Jesus sees as the aggressor. This this is huge. I mean, this literally ties directly to what I was talking about Sunday morning. It's the church that is meant to be the aggressor. It's not the church that's supposed to be the one in hiding. Jesus is saying the gates of hell were standing at the very headquarters of hell right here. And he's declaring war on evil and death. And when he rises from the dead, he is the first fruits. He literally has accomplished the end from the beginning. The only reason we're here now is to help somebody else end up in that same, be accomplished to have that same end. We're here to help translate people out of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. Not to be afraid of the kingdom of a darkness and what they're going to do to us. Because we have a weapon That the enemy does not. It's called love. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us because of what Christ did to bring the love of God to this world. Jesus is literally declaring a war war on evil and death. And Jesus would build his church on top of the gates of hell. He would bury the gates of hell. We need to flip the meaning around when you get the understanding and they're like, you're talking about being the Messiah and you're talking about this hellish place. Why are you talking about it? Because I'm literally going to build my church right on top of death and evil. And That's what the cross is. The cross is the foundation. All of death and evil doing everything it can to stamp him out and him being on it. Why? Because he loves that much. That much. It wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It was love that held him to the cross. For the, for the, for the uh, joy set before him, he despised the shame and embraced the cross, the writer of Hebrews tells us. This is why we need to understand these things. Because we have been given 
this amazing gift. We, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, a, one thing. I'll give you an example that I've seen recently that was hugely encouraging to me. And this, again, I don't want you because some people will get to me about, oh, you're being political. No. How many are familiar with Mike Johnson, the guy who took over as the uh, um, uh, Speaker of the House? Anybody familiar with him? Yeah. I didn't know anything about him. But I've, so I've been listening to his, him talking. Go out and check out some of his speeches. He literally is fearless about bringing up the Lord and about what he's doing. He's, he doesn't bring Jesus in as a little bit, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian, so I believe in Christian principles. He's, no, he'll come right out and say, we need to do things in a godly way. That's the, what's going to turn this. That's what's going to enable us to overcome the things that we're facing as a nation. He understands, I, I, you know, I can have a one-on-one conversation, but that's what this is talking about. That's about us embracing our faith and living it in a real way, loving others, both with our deeds, with our lives, and with our words. Our actions, in a way that we actually believe Jesus is building his kingdom on top of the gates of hell. He is going to where evil and death was, and he is bringing life and love. That's the gospel. It's the only reason we're staying in here now. All right. So there you go. That's our two. Um, did I bore you with the Bible tonight? Anybody? <laughs> okay, let's let's pray. What we're going to do, we're going to pray. And afterwards, um, we'll turn off. And if there's a, a question or two somebody has, we'll, we'll take the question. Father, we bless you. Father, I pray that we learn these lessons, we understand these things, we seek to, to see how, what did the Bible mean then so that we can understand what it means to us. Help us to apply these things in our lives. Help us to get these things. Help us to be excited to know more from the Scriptures and dig deeper and be bold about what you have done and what you are doing. And what you desire to do. Lord, I speak blessing over everyone that's here. Are there anything we talked about tonight that's, that's from you and from your word? Plant it deep in our souls. And bring forth fruit. Fruit that is meat for others. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. So let me know when we're talking.